Welcome to We Have Issues, the podcast that shines a light on the good, the bad, and the ugly of the social goods sector. This is Jay Frost. Together with my co-host, Kimberly McKenzie, we'll be digging into the issues that keep popping up to the surface of philanthropy, fundraising, and nonprofit practice, asking the tough questions of independent experts and involving panels of top sector leaders in discussions on how we can do better at doing good. In this episode, we welcome journalist and philanthropic historian Benjamin Soskis as our first ever guest. On October 26, 2021, Benjamin published an article in the Chronicle of Philanthropy called A Legacy of Sackler, Let's Reconsider Philanthropic Naming Rights. Benjamin is a senior research associate in Ur the Urban Institute Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy and the co-editor of Histville, a web publication dedicated to the history of philanthropy, nonprofits, and civil society. He is a frequent contributor to the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and his work has also appeared in the Washington Post, The Atlantic, The Guardian, and The Wall Street Journal, among other publications. You can read more about Benjamin and get the link to his article in the show notes. The cool thing about this podcast is that it is being recorded with a live audience and an expert group of panelists on Clubhouse. We're thrilled to have our panelists join us and we welcome Teddy Schleifer, founding partner at Puck Media, Rachel Hutchison, Vice President, Global Social Responsibility at Blackbaud, Regime Benchtritt, Business Development and Nonprofit Strategy at Traction On Demand, and Al Cantor, Principal at Al Cantor Consulting Limited. We are positively thrilled to be able to launch this podcast with such a high caliber panel, and we sincerely hope that you enjoy this robust conversation. Teddy, welcome to the room. Uh, folks, I'm Kimberly McKenzie, CEO and founder of The Intersection, and I love being a catalyst for candid conversations, which is what I hope we're going to have here tonight. So thank you all to um, all of you in the room for joining. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a lay of the land for how this is going to work tonight. Up here on stage, we have curated a panel of rabble rousers and free thinkers and, and folks who think that we can do better by doing good. Good. And this week, we're going to be talking about Benjamin Soskis's article in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. And if you have not read it, uh, we'll be talking about it a little bit. But you can also click through to the link at the top of the room and have a look yourself. So we'll be having about a 15, 20 minute conversation with Ben, uh, with my co-host, Jay. And then we'll be opening it up to our panel for contributions, conversation and uh, and you know, rabble rousing. So Jay, what do you think? Does that all sound good to you? It sounds awesome. And um, now there are people who are listening after the fact, and there are people who are here with us now, and maybe yeah. it's helpful for them to know a little bit about how the atmosphere within Clubhouse functions. So I know you'll be the uh, the ultimate moderator, as you always are, Kimberly. Um, and for those who are new to this, you'll find that she's a great guide to making sure that this is a fully participatory conversation. Um, and that's especially important because both what we're talking about tonight and what we're gonna be talking about in the weeks ahead, which is all the tough stuff 
that we often sweep under the rug. Now, we don't do it intentionally, of course, but we, we often don't want to focus on the bad stuff because it can make it look like we're all doing bad things, which we know isn't true. This is a sector full of people that are really working hard to do good. But the reality is some things just don't go as planned or we continue doing things that we probably shouldn't if we just took a little closer look at them. So the idea, um, and stop me, Kimberly, if I'm you know speaking out of turn on this, but I think the idea we drummed up together was let's invite people who know a lot about the subject area but are just a step outside the usual inside baseball fundraising world so that mm -hmm. they can give us a little guidance, give us some perspective and information we might not have had, but also facilitate what we hope is going to be both a fun, but also very honest conversation, maybe even debate about mm -hmm. something which we don't want to talk about usually. Yeah. And what I love about that, what I love about that, Jay, is that sometimes folks who don't work within our sector look at it and think, you do what? Did that just happen? What? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so that's why I think we've got a, a great group of folks here tonight. And just for folks who are on the stage, um, when we get into our conversation, if you want to applaud or engage with something brilliant that, you know, I say, or maybe someone else, you just tap your mic the way Jay's going to do right now to just give your mic a nice quick tap and go, yeah, that's awesome. And it kind of cheers the person talking on a little bit. If you really want an opportunity to contribute and you're just bursting to say something in response to what somebody is saying, uh, we try not to talk over each other in Clubhouse, especially when we're recording a podcast. So what we're going to do is you just give a slow tap of your mic. I'm going to keep an eye on that and I will make sure that we create space for you to participate in the conversation. And with that, Jay, I would love you to introduce our friend Ben and let's get started. Excellent. Yeah, I'll be happy to. And I won't read Ben's full bio, but I want to give him a little bit of shine here because not everybody uh, in, in at least my world of fundraising necessarily knows his work but we all need to, not just because this article he's written that he'll be taking us through a bit and then giving us additional insights on, but because he's contributing so much to the understanding of the sector and how it operates, again, with that bit of objectivity, which sometimes we, we lack. So uh, Ben Saskis is a senior research associate at the Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy at the Urban Institute, which I'm sure you all know. And he also is really well known as both an historian and a journalist. He's the co-editor of a website that you need to know and, and play with, which is Histphil, a web publication devoted to the history of nonprofit and philanthropic sectors. Um, he's been all over the map uh, writing about the sector uh, and, and the good and the bad of it for everything from the Washington Post, The Atlantic, The Guardian, New Yorker, Stanford Social Innovation Review, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he's been a co-author of a couple of books, which you want on your shelf. One is Looking Back at 50 Years of U.S. Philanthropy that was published by Hewlett in 2016, and also A History of Associational Life and the Nonprofit Sector in the U.S. It's a mouthful, but it's obviously a good read in the Nonprofit Sector Research Handbook published by Stanford. So he's been around and he knows his stuff, but that doesn't mean that the stuff he talks about is necessarily at the tip of our tongue. And that's particularly true when it comes to the issue of naming rights. So Kimberly already referred to an article you may have seen in some of the uh, promotion we did for this little gathering, um, a link to this article. But if you haven't, I at least want to tell you the title. And as she said, you can take a look if you're here with us right now. 
uh, up at the top of the page and take a look for the article. But it's Necronical Philanthropy. It's an op-ed piece published on October 26, entitled A Legacy of Sackler. Let's Reconsider Philanthropic Naming Rights. So for anything else, I want to welcome you, Ben, and thank you for jumping into the middle of this with us. <laughs> thank you for your trust. How are you? Good, good. Uh, thanks, Jay, and, and thanks, Kimberly. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And uh, in, in at least uh, you don't t- uh, sound like you're talking through a mask. We can't see your face in the picture, but we know you're you're here to speak honestly and directly. Um, can you take us a little bit through what you talked about in the op-ed for those who haven't read it? Sure, sure. I mean, the title is the entrance point. So um, it was inspired by uh, a settlement, um, a legal settlement in the um, uh, the bankruptcy case against Purdue, uh, which uh, uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, which uh, many of you might know was the um, manufacturer of OxyContin, um, a, a drug that uh, many consider to be at the root of the opioid crisis. Um, and the Sackler family is the longtime uh, owners of um, uh, Purdue, uh, and there's a lot of attention on the um, the bankruptcy proceedings, um, and uh, some hope from activists that were trying to hold the Sacklers accountable uh, that this would happen. Uh, but not so surprisingly, um, it 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 fell short of many of their um, demands. But there was one really striking element of the uh, settlement, and that was. <clears throat> a provision that barred the Sacklers from pursuing any naming rights until they had basically fulfilled, uh, paid off a, a series of, of debts uh, and, and uh, sort of legal responsibilities. Um, as far as I know, it really is, is the most um, uh, notable occasion in which the, uh, the law has kind of reached into the philanthropic realm with respect to naming rights. Um, and, you know, I was struck by it. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it just kind of sparked, uh, I've been thinking about naming rights for a while and it just sparked something, uh, uh, in me and, and which is the not so, so profound observation that, um, naming rights are really weird. Um, they're just a strange, uh, um, kind of fact of, of our philanthropic life that we, that we just kind of take for granted. Um, but it's, it's sort of, uh, it's, it's peculiar that, um, these major uh, philanthropic and charitable institutions <clears throat> are kind of um, crowned with names of extremely wealthy people. And, and it got me thinking, what, what, what do those names really mean? What, what is meant by uh, uh, the name um, from, uh, from a naming right? And, and I, I wanted to take the perspective not so much of the fundraising community or even the charitable um, institution uh, um, uh, community, and, and, and I think both have important perspectives that, that are, need to be considered, <clears throat> excuse me, but, um, but from the public, um, you know, what does it mean for the public to be confronted with a real cacophony of names in, in, uh, in the charitable landscape? And I, I, um, I thought a bit about it, and it seemed to me that there are three ways in which we can understand naming rights, and, and those three ways each correspond to, a, to three um, ways in which we sort of interpret or understand as the public uh, the, um, the meaning of, uh, of the philanthropic gift. Um, one is a kind of purely transactional uh, understanding, and that's you know, basically a donor insists on naming rights in order to, as a condition of a gift, the beneficiary institution provides those naming rights. Um, it's, pr- it's pretty, um, uh, you know, 
it, it does, doesn't have a lot of kind of moral overtones. And I think the way that the public understands that version is somewhat cynically. Um, there's not a huge amount of kind of, uh, of a, a message attached to the name other than, you know, rich people are able to, to uh, pay for uh, goods and, and, um, and things that they value and, um, and they, uh, can, they gain a whole series of benefits from that. Um, so that's, that's one, um, uh, one version of naming rights. Um, the second version is as a form of gratitude on the part of the beneficiary institution. Um, and I should just say just quickly here, um, there's a lot of, uh, gratitude gets a bad name, I think, especially in kind of some of the critical discourse on, mm. uh, in social media. But I, I think it has a real place, a real legitimate place um, in, in the philanthropic realm. I, I, don't, I don't dispute it as an important human um, response to, to, uh, to gifts. Uh, and I understand the need for institutions uh, to, um, you know, to honor it. Um, but, but the weird thing about uh, understanding naming rights as a, as a kind of um, uh, form of, of, or a consequence of gratitude is, you know, what are those names really, what do those names really signify? Um, because the, the gratitude is, uh, for the most part, kind of localized in the gift itself. And the gift itself, um, you know, doesn't necessarily extend to any other notable or a laudable quality in the giver. And so it, it's, it, it kind of leaves um, a, a lot of open space in terms of how the public understands what is, what is the meaning of that name. You can be grateful uh, for a gift, but, but um, also not think much of the person giving it. The third way is um, as um, a kind of merging or an embrace of the identity of the donor and the identity of the institution itself. Um, and, and this, this uh, I think, um, uh, you know, sometimes um, is uh, deliberate and sometimes it's inadvertent. Uh, so uh, and that, that's something that, that I, I think it's important for us to, um, to kind of confront that if you have a, an institution and it bears the name of an individual, that can sometimes be a pretty heavy burden for an institution to carry, um, especially when there is not a consensus on how commendable the individual is or, or what the nature of, of uh, the, the way that the individual accumulated his or her money. And so, and this extends way beyond what we now consider just tainted uh, donations, you know, something that's obviously tainted. Um, there's a whole host of, of very rich people um, who give lots of money and, and the way they make their money is, um, is, is subject of, of um, you know, considerable public controversy, um, even if, even if we, there's, there's no actual uh, you know, consensus on, on a taint like the Sacklers. Um, and, um, and so you know, I, I, I was kind of struggling with these three, these three definitions, and I, and I, I lay them out in, uh, in the article. Uh, and uh, talk a bit about the kind of historical context for naming rights. Um, and I, I, I end trying to spell out, given those three different versions um, and, and, the, and the ways in which the public, the different ways in which the public can understand uh, naming rights, I, I gravitate, or I think the, the, the um, uh, best version is that final one in which a name says something about the institution itself and the values that, that it embodies. And so 
I, I end by suggesting three different ways that the public can kind of um, respond to this, you know, this real flood of, of philanthropic names. Um, and and I, I should also say that that um, I, throughout the piece, I make it very clear that I appreciate that these names are probably responsible for tens of billions of dollars of, of philanthropic uh, revenue coming in, and that they've done, because of that, um, significant good. Uh, so I, I don't want to dispute that at all, um, but I, I wanted to kind of play another side, um, the kind of a, 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 a kind of counter argument to them. So um, the the three um, the three ways I think the public should respond. Um, one, I think we should resist that first purely transactional and cynical notion that names are meaningless, that they that they have no value, and that they can be basically ignored, that they're not an important part of the of the of the landscape. Um, and I I, um, I give an example that you know I, for a long time um, my daughter's summer camp um, right uh, right near at the Smithsonian, and I, I would stand and wait near the Sackler Gallery uh, to pick them up. And for a long time I, I had I really didn't know um, who Sackler was. I didn't know it was it was Arthur Sackler. I had no idea. Um, uh, you know, who the person was. And so I think that we need um, to be more attentive to, to philanthropic names and to take names as a kind of uh, civic opportunity um, to in interrogate the source of wealth um, and, and to hold donors accountable. I mentioned, for instance, that, you know, um, it, it, uh, you know there, there's an argument that the Sackler uh, philanthropy was an effort to kind of... Um, uh, obscure uh, the the um, ways in which um, they they made uh, their money, but if you look at, at um, the the main sites of protest against the Sacklers, people weren't lining up uh, outside Purdue Pharma's factories. They were um, protesting at philanthropic institutions. That uh, because of the name, these institutions became a major site of protest. And a place to demand accountability. So one is pay attention to names and and take them as a civic challenge. Uh, but even if we recognize that names can be um, can have some civic value, my second um, my second uh, kind of uh, suggestion to the public is to recognize um, that there's something something really deeply inegalitarian about the demand to name an institution after oneself, and that I think the public should basically um, wield a kind of subtle, maybe not so subtle, subtle presumption against naming rights as a form of hubris, that uh, development officers and fundraisers should have to affirmatively overcome for some good reason. Um, that, that we should, you know, there should be a kind of um, a counter argument about uh, why, we, what is the purpose of naming things? Um, uh, and and the, and the ways in which uh, it it might not necessarily uh, constitute a, a, you know an exemplary philanthropic practice. The third and final um, uh, kind of suggestion, and then I'll stop and turn it over to, to you guys, is that um, you know if we assume that, that naming rights aren't going to go anywhere, we should encourage um, individual donors who either um, uh, don't insist on naming rights. Um, or um, choose to name institutions after um, exemplary figures, people they want, they admire, people they want to celebrate. And I think what this does is it, it, it reaffirms that the names are attached to that third 
meaning that I talked about, that idea about identity, and it detaches them from this, this, um, this gratitude imperative. I think there are many other ways to show gratitude. You can show gratitude with a dinner, with a plaque, you know, all sorts of ways. But the name should have a didactic purpose. It should teach us something. It should represent something. And we should. And it's a, a phenomenal opportunity for uh, for donors, for fundraisers, for the charitable institutions themselves to think carefully about uh, the um, the uh, values they they uphold and how they want to um, show up in in the broader charitable landscape. And I and just with a kind of sort of tongue in cheek. Um, uh, suggestion, though, you know, I, I think it actually has some serious to it, which is that if donors really, really want a building named after them, um, this gives them a way to ensure that, which is lead an exemplary life and be the kind of person that other people want to name a building after, and you'll have that chance. Uh, so that's that's a basic rundown of the article um, I would uh, have at it. I'm very curious to hear everyone's thoughts. Great. Great, great, great. Thank you so much, Ben, for that quick synopsis. I mean, it takes longer to read the article than you took to describe it. So I, and there's a lot more in it. And I encourage folks to uh, really click through and think about it. I love, um, you know, the, the, the fact that you've shone a light on the on the concept of communities protesting in front of charitable institutions because of the name on the building is so important. And the paradox that you've mentioned about unsavory things donors can do and the good that their money can do I think is also fascinating and the concept of honoring good people through your gift um Jay do you have any thoughts and then I really want to oh Teddy's gone then I want to open it up to the room what do you think yeah no I was having the same thoughts um and I do want to make sure that uh when we talk about this that we also know what was the catalyst for this conversation so it can get kind of lost in it and that's, of course, as you said at the top, that the Sacklers and the Sacklers and specifically Purdue Farm and OxyContin and, and this settlement. And you talked about it in the article, uh, Ben, and then you mentioned it here about this really kind of remarkable statement made by the Attorney General of Massachusetts that, uh, well, now you're not going to be able to put your name on anything. And I have so many thoughts about that. I mean, first of all, it didn't really say for how long. Um, and, and so that was one thing that was kind of surprising to me. Um, on the other hand, it seems to affect anybody with the name Sackler and maybe I'm mistaken, but I'm not sure that everybody in the family is responsible for Purdue Pharma. So when you hear about those things, and, uh, I know you, you've given us a prescription for how we can address some of this with this kind of three fixes that you have towards the end of the article. But I'm wondering at this point in time, when so many organizations are involved in big campaigns, uh, do you, what do you think about the way that the government has taken an approach that's specific to this case? And is there something that can be learned and applied, or at least as a cautionary tale for other nonprofits? Great question. I'll just interject quick. Ben, I'll give you an opportunity to respond, and then I want you to toss it over to Teddy. All right? Sure. I'll be quick. I'm looking forward to hearing from Teddy. Um, so the, the, there is a term on, on the ban, and that's basically until the Sacklers have exited um, the their they have I think a seven year um, or something around there uh, uh, time limit to exit um, all of their opioid related businesses. So as long as they're in the kind of opioid business, um, they cannot name. But it's not it's not a, a perpetual ban. Um, uh, you know, so so it does have a, a duration. Um, but you know, to, to the larger point, look, it's 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 a pretty striking 
um, move by by uh, you know by the AGs. Um, and what I what I think that it might like signal is that um, naming rights are are increasingly going to be viewed, uh, if not uh, as a kind of tax to, as a as you know we know that the IRS for instance doesn't value them when it when it um, calculates how much of a gift uh, can can be uh, deducted, but it. It, it might be the case that they are now increasingly um, recognized in the kind of um, you know, legal process uh, and the political process as um, important kind of leverage points. Um, and that's, that's what I think that, you know, that, that not just a size of protest, but ways to, to leverage uh, donors and, and to bargain and to extract what you want from them. Um, so um, I think uh, a, a named institution is a tremendous opportunity for a donor. Uh, but it also opens a sort of vulnerability, uh, and and that's I think that's what this this settlement suggests. Anyway, Teddy, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Hey, thanks so much for for having me up. Um, I guess just one one just to to play the uh, contrarian here. Um, you know, like I, I think every uh, person who studies this work would have to candidly admit that uh, fame. Uh, is a part of why people make major charitable gifts. Um, and as, as despicable as that might feel at times, I wonder if there's an argument to be made that, that naming rights, you know, uh, are, are, means to are, are means that are, uh, that the ends justify the means here, that, you know, uh, there could be a situation in which some donor would not give to a particularly worthy cause, whether it's a university or a hospital or whatnot, um, if the naming rights didn't come with it. And that's a package deal that we may have to uneasily accept um, because in a hypothetical alternative scenario, you know, would a scholarship exist if the naming rights didn't come with it? That's something I think about a lot when I think about this debate is, is to what extent um, is this a necessary evil, um, as evil as it may be. Uh, that's, I, I just want to respond to that, Teddy, if I may, and then we'll open it up to the room. I have had uh, six, seven-figure donors who have said to me in, in my work that they don't, they don't need to be named, they don't want to be acknowledged. And at that time, my response to them was, but if you're willing to be public with this gift, it will model for others that we're in this kind of business, that, we, that we're open for business. And so there's the the modeling element of um, as just, you know, assuming that na naming rights go hand in hand with major gifts and not really thinking about all of the downsides that Ben has shone a light on with his article. Um, I'll give you a chance to respond to that if you have one and then open it up to the room. Tap your mic, folks, if you want to jump in. And for those of you who are in what I like to call the listening lounge, we see some friends and some new folks there. If you have a question for our panel, just send me a direct message by tapping that little airplane in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, and I'd be happy to raise your question for you. Um, Teddy, any any further thoughts? No, I, I gotta uh, head out. You got, you got to bounce. Yeah. Thanks for coming, uh, Rachel. Uh, are you there? And and would you like to contribute? Sure, I am here, and I would love to contribute. Um, um, I think a lot about the the number three piece that that you talked about, um, the merger of identity. And the thing that really strikes me is that we're living in the era of the personal brand, 
And really, I mean, that that didn't really exist in the same way before you had, you know, the Carnegie's, et cetera, and people with, you know, big names. And everyone knew the Sacklers because of their donations, not because of what they owned. Um, but but now, like we all have personal brands, you know, we're here on this this podcast, each having individual brands. And, you know, I do corporate philanthropy and, and global social responsibility for a company and companies are held responsible for funding if they get any marketing benefit from it it's a marketing spend. So it seems like we need to be thinking about is, is that what we should be doing with people too? And I don't know the answer, but, but I think a lot, and this might sound really wacky to you, but I, I live in the world of ESG, environment, social governance, sustainability reporting, and public companies have to report and show that they're good responsible entities. So it, it feels like we're almost heading toward individuals and families need to show in some way that they're good responsible entities. You know, on the flip side, I'm a little concerned that a court is telling fundraisers and nonprofits what to do, although it's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not sure that's what I want them to do. So there are some thoughts for you. Thanks, Rachel. We're so glad you made time to be here. Who just unmuted? Um, ben, what do you think about that? Ben, Jay? Um, I mean, I think these are all valid points. I mean, I, I think... The, the question is, how do you, I mean, shaping norms in the fundraising community isn't something that you do quickly. Um, it's something that would take a long time. And so the question I have is right now, there's a very clear norm in favor of naming rights, um, that naming rights are you know, an essential part of, of what um, gets people to give. Um, and I, I think that we should consider alternative for, uh, you know, possibilities. Um, and, and, you know, not that, that we're going to instantly ban naming rights. Um, but, but I think the kind of subtle pressures, um, that, that we can exert, um, uh, both in terms of a public voice, but also, you know, the, the fundraising community itself, um, and, and who we uphold and the, and the gifts that we really, that we really, uh, want to celebrate. Uh, we have a chance to, to, you know, exert again, subtle pressure, um, to, uh, think about um, uh, a form of of um, recognition that that is maybe more appropriate. Um, I mean, I, I I go back to this this idea that um, if if you just kind of uh, if an alien parachuted down uh, into the you know in, into um, some major uh, city and uh, with the assumption that people whose names are you know, on walls and on buildings are uh, people who a society values and celebrates, um, that, that alien would, would come to think that the people that we celebrate and value are people with a lot of money. Um, and, and that, uh, you know, uh, that, that might be the case. Maybe, maybe this is just an affirmation that when it comes down to it, that's true. But, um, you know, I think that's, that's something that we should think about um, if, if, we, if that's really what we want um, uh, our, our uh, charitable institutions to communicate. Yeah, you know, just adding to this, and I and I can tell that Al is is flashing his mic, so he's either applauding or he has something to say. But just quickly, um, I I you know one thing that you said, Ben, does strike me because you said that um, there's kind of an assumption I should say in what you're talking about that uh, that donors want this recognition, and I just want to make sure we're checking ourselves for a second. I wonder if most donors seek it and that's why they give or we offer it it's sort of like a restaurant we put it on the menu 
And therefore they say, oh, I'll take one of those. In other words, how, mu how much responsibility do we ha bear because we are making this offer versus do donors bear because we're giving them recognition, which possibly maybe they're not actually seeking? Yeah, right on, Jay. Yeah, absolutely. Al, what, what, I, you unmuted, so you're getting the hang of the club, you're getting the hang of Clubhouse. What do you think? And then we'll go. Yeah, to I'm, I'm, I'm totally into Clubhouse, Kimberly. Thank you. I um, knew you would love it, man. Uh, so, so uh, you can toss the mic over to Regine when you're done, Al. What do you think? I, I, I can argue every side of this issue. And I'm so happy Ben did this. And I just happened to have finished reading uh, uh, Patrick Radden Keefe's very worthwhile and, and fascinating book, um, The Empire of Pain, about the Sackler family. And really, Jay, there are many, many people named Sackler who bear responsibility for this. So, so um, it's, it's, it's a fascinating book. And you see just how dark it can get. But it does occur to me that Ben's third alternative where you name something after people who are worthy of your institution is both fascinating, but that's problematic in itself. Um, for years, Harvard University did not name any of its graduate schools. Um, recently, they've started to do that when donors have given them enough hundreds of millions of dollars. But they, on their own, named the School of Government the John F. Kennedy School of Government after their, at the time, still fairly recent um, alumnus and, 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 you know, assassinated president. But probably, Ben, you went to Yale. You'll have to, you probably know the history of this, but I'm not sure what year it was that Yale named one of its residential colleges after John C. Calhoun, who was you know, in the old days, thought of as one of the statesmen holding the country together and from a modern perspective was a horrible apologist for slavery and nullification and terrible stuff. And Yale recently pulled his name off. So he wasn't a donor. He was somebody who was an exemplary citizen who now is seen as just a god-awful human being. It's complicated stuff. It is. Thank it you is. so much Thank for that. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I, and just to add to that, um, I was thinking about the Calhoun example, but also thinking about something that involves D.C. once again, like the place where you used to walk, Ben, uh, with your family, and uh, and how different it's treated in D.C. from the way it's treated at a university. And that's the Wilson uh, School at Princeton, which, after a lot of um, consternation among students, did finally decide to remove uh, President Wilson's name. Woodrow Wilson from their school. Um, and, but uh, as far as I know, it's still the Wilson uh, Center for International Scholars right there in the castle at the Smithsonian. So these things that we're discussing don't necessarily, they aren't, they aren't perceived universally in the same ways. These people, even as historical figures, um, aren't received and understood in the same ways. Um, so how much are we asking uh, for our organizations to um, rethink, especially if you follow the, ther the third path that you've mentioned, Ben, to rethink um, what we've done in the past from an historical context, which makes sense for one institution and its values or for society's values. I mean, I would, I would like to think that nobody in this room would be supportive of putting 
you know, uh, Robert E. Lee's name on something, but we're still in the process of removing Robert E. Lee's name from a bunch of schools in the state of Virginia. Um, so are we looking for uh, a remedy for um, for all of us or for some of us? I think Ben um, unmuted and has a response to that, and then we'll go to Regine. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, let me just make a quick response, and then I'd love to hear what Regine has to say. Um, so I just want to uh, respond to Alan's, uh, Alan's really great, great point, um, and, and to say that I do, I'm under no illusions that um, suggesting that institutions um, uh, you know, want to be named after uh, individuals that they find exemplary in some in some way would um, would uh, you know, prevent controversy. Um, in fact, you know, the, an example I, I mentioned in my article is uh, George Mason University's law school being named after Antonio Scalia, uh, you know, which um, for many at the law school itself, he is an exemplary thinker. For others, he is not. The reason why I think it's important to do so is because it clarifies what the name is supposed to do. Um, so it, it's not that it, it, it takes names outside the realm of public controversy, but what it does do is suggest that the institution is making a deliberate effort to identify with the name and his values and his, and his, um, his or her uh, um, you know, achievements. The problem now is that I don't think names, it's, I think it's just entirely unclear what those names are supposed to do. Uh, and so it would give clarity to the kind of didactic or, or, or um, you know, symbolic nature of of the names, and then we'd have to have it out as a public. You know, uh, it's it, it's not necessarily a bad thing um, to have to um, argue about. You know, is is Robert E. Lee somebody we should celebrate? In fact, it's probably the uh, we, the fact that so many um, institutions were named after uh, Civil War and Confederate generals or other people with with very problematic pasts was one of the ways in which that you know that we were confronted uh, with. With the, that past, and if it hadn't been that case, it's possible we would have uh, been able to to avoid uh, some of those confrontations. So I, I don't I, I see that controversy as as not necessarily a good in itself, um, but it's it is uh, it, it is the clarity that would um, that would uh, you know, come to what the nature of a name is that that I think is important. And it's interesting that the that the you know what happened a hundred years ago that would warrant putting celebrating somebody and putting them in in a building has shifted so much over time, and we as a society need to be prepared to make that shift and have what you mentioned that moral clause or somebody called it a a bad boys or misconduct clause. What do you think, Regine? What a fascinating conversation, isn't it? It is. And, and there's so many points that I want to touch upon and I'm writing all these things down. Well, it's your time. turn. You take your uh, time. Uh, at the okay. same time. But I think Ben, I think Ben and Rachel bring up a good point in terms of, you know, corporations need to, to, you know, demonstrate a return, a return on investment. Right. So to Ben's point, what is that when it comes to an individual? What is the return? How are you measuring success? Um, of having someone's name, you know, on a building or a wing or whatever it may be. I think also what um, needs to be done, you know, like, you know, prospect researchers are in some of these large institutions and one of their first jobs is to, you know, find out the properties that these folks own, where do they live, the cars they drive, the people they hang out with, right? And I think we need to go beyond that in terms of, 
you know, scrubbing the internet, scrubbing, you know, social accounts, like uh, everything's at our fingertips now in terms of, you know, and we're seeing it in, in Hollywood, Hollywood and things dating back, you know, 10 years. And now we see this cancel culture. Um, you know, those are things that should also be done by, by, you know, some of the nonprofits. The other thing I think we need to think of is I honestly, like in the next 10 years, this naming rights might be a moot point. You know, we're seeing $68 trillion of wealth that's going to be transferred to, you know, millennials. And, uh, you know, that group, you know, with all the research that's out there, they're not interested in their names on buildings. They really want to show and demonstrate impact. You know, they're more likely to want to donate anonymously, right? They want proof of impact. So how are nonprofits going to shift um, into that space? You raised such a great point. Is this a conversation that's looking backwards instead of forwards? I'm, uh, Thank you for, for sharing and poking us in that direction. Rachel, Alan, Ben, Jay, it's open. Rachel, you're up. Yeah, it's. I think that's such an interesting question because, you know, we didn't have the same kind of access to information in the past. And, and these decisions were made a long time ago. But now in decisions that I know we have to make every day at my own company, you know, how do we celebrate an observance? How can we be inclusive across all of our geographies? What we're always examining um, our own blind spots, all the things that we're constantly learning. And it, 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 it just, it feels like, like it or not, you know, organizations, not just nonprofits, organizations have to grapple with the, the way individual people and not just organizations or families or companies show up, what their brand stands for. And if their actions actually are, are, you know, providing the, the same foundation as what their brand stands for are they walking the you know walking the walk talking the talk all of that um and and it's pretty easy to do some to figure that out um i, I feel like you know it's i would hope to think that fundraisers and nonprofits would do that but i think there's something really in what jay you said that people are doing it because that's what's available um we have to be more creative about what donors can actually do and how they can invest so that it's not, you know, because if someone builds a building and their naming rights, not just on the outside, but all throughout the building, you know, the boardroom, the everything, everything is named. It's because it's a mechanism for them to raise money. So I would really be curious to hear what fundraisers would say they would offer instead in order to raise the funding for their cause. This is a, this is so interesting, Rachel, because um, just on a personal level, uh, at, there's a school that, that I attended where they just went through a campaign and it was significant for them. It was over a hundred million dollars. And the, uh, the, the campaign focused as most campaigns do now on the kinds of people that we're all talking about, that Ben's writing about a small percentage of people who can make the biggest impact that's done for the sake of efficiency. There are naming rights involved, how much we're being sought versus what we're offered is one of those riddles, I guess. But um, the people who are left out are also the people who are being hollowed out of the philanthropic economy. All those, you know, for lack of a better term, it's not a nice one, middle donors, the people who might, instead of being able to name a building because A, they can't and B, they weren't offered the opportunity, even if they had the money, they might want to put their name like I might. Um, on the room where I lived uh, as a boarding school student for a couple of years at an art school. But my son just coincidentally ended up staying in the same room, which, by the way, looked exactly like it did when I was there 
30, uh, 40 years prior. So the room hadn't changed at all. It really did need to be redone. Is that but true? The, That's really it is, true? It is true. And it's crazy. And, but wow. I don't want to feed into that idea that I'm, <laughs> trying, that I'm trying you know, put my name on stuff. A, because I can't be because, you know, that's not me. But it, but I do wonder if, uh, once again, uh, if part of this is something we are precipitating and if the kinds of things that, that you're talking about, Ben, give us another way of dealing with this, but not just replacing it with a new form of kind of hagiography where, for example, we, we maybe there's somebody right now that uh, we love who's written a great book but in 30 years, we're all going to say, oh, my God, how in the world could I have liked that person? And we don't know what that is yet. So I'm, I'm not uncomfortable with a change, but I am wondering if the, if the change that will replace this is one that just causes a, 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 potentially a different set of problems. But you brought up something in your article, which was fascinating, about a technical change. You mentioned the Smithsonian, that they are instituting this 20-year rule. Can you talk about that a little bit and if you see other people doing that? Before, before we give Ben the mic to do that, Jay, I just want a point of housekeeping, if that's all right, because we're recording live on mm -hmm. Clubhouse. We do have folks who are listening, and we're so grateful that you all are there, Elaine, Patrick, Chandler, Judith, Lisa, Vanessa, Reed. It's, it's really wonderful to have you here. If you would like to ask a question of the panel, please just send me a direct message, and, and um, I'm happy to voice that for you. Ben, back to you on Jay's question. Sure. I mean, this is something that that I, I mean, I, I'm not, um, I don't know a huge amount about, but I, I've noticed in the past, say, decade and a half, uh, more and more institutions have uh, have incorporated uh, term limits into into um, naming rights, uh, and there's two reasons. There's um, one reason is the kind of regenerative idea that you know you want to give an institution the chance to fundraise again. Um, you know, this is. Um, yeah, the, the the we saw this with um, Avery Fisher Hall, for instance, uh, and the uh, David Geffen gift. Um, but uh, so there's a kind of positive, you know, uh, like uh, w we should um, we should use the possibility of naming rights as many times as we can, uh, and per and perpetual naming rights is in a way um, a, 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 like a. a um, clogs, you know, clogs that that potential. But the, then there's a defensive version of that, um, which um, you know the the Smithsonian incorporated, uh, the Louvre uh, in France uh, incorporated as well. And that's one reason why they were able, in fact, to take down um, the the Sackler's name. Um, and that is, uh, it's an opportunity to kind of do a refresh to you know if there are names that are problematic. Um, uh, that um, no longer fit the times and the, the mores and the kind of moral consciousness of the time, it's an opportunity to, to, uh, you know, to kind of reconsider um, the appropriateness of names. Uh, and so I, I, in the article, I think those are, those are two, I, I think that's a great idea. I, I, I think that's something that, um, you know, both have value. Um, I think uh, the, you know, the idea that, that a name should, should be a perpetual kind of baggage an institution should have to bear um, seems, um, you know, seems problematic, though at time, it's possible that an institution could embrace that. So I, I don't think that this wouldn't mean that you'd have to do a, a refresh, uh, but you'd have to at least reconsider it. Right, right, right. So Kimberly, do you have thoughts at this point or others you want to welcome into the conversation? 
Well, I, I would love to invite some folks who are down in the listening lounge to come on up. I'm going to throw you all an invite. And uh, if you'd like to take advantage of it and contribute to the conversation, we welcome you. And then we'll see if anyone takes us up on that. And we will move into final thoughts. Uh, in Clubhouse, I like to follow the natural arc of the conversation. And so um, as we're waiting to see if anybody would like to receive the invitation to come on up, I wonder, Rachel, Al, Regine, Ben, um, any any thoughts on the discussion so far? And for those of you who may be wondering, that very handsome man there, Robert, is my husband and our sound technician. So he's um, we're not going to give him a chance to speak because I'm uh, Robert. Uh, <laughs> all right, all right. Um, Al, Rachel, Al, what do you think? Um. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting. We're we obviously focus on like the Sacklers of the world and the named buildings and the big bad guys, and and I I'm kind of obsessed with it myself. But I'm thinking in practical terms of how this works in small nonprofit Mm -hmm. fundraising, and I I think of a six million dollar theater project that I that I consulted on. And, um, you know, the, the theater had a naming right, but so did, you know, the, the lounge and so did practically the restrooms and the stairwells and each seat. And what, what, what I saw practically happening there was that, you know, in some ways it was silly because, you know, there was that menu that Jay referred to. And you're saying, oh, gosh, for $1,000, I can get a seat. Well, I was only going to give it $500. Um, and, you know, I'm fascinated by the notion of anchor points and fundraising and the stuff that Daniel Kahneman has written about with behavioral psychology. And I have to say, it works. It gets people to raise their aspirations because they say, gosh, I, I wanna I wanna get my name on something, and I I think it's kind of harmless, and it does raise a lot of money that way. So so again, I could argue every side of this, and I've enjoyed mm-hmm. being part of hearing it, and I'm going to be thinking about it until the next time we all get together. Mm-hmm. It's it really it really the chicken and egg, right? Like are charities creating this construct because that's what what the old school boys club expected, and it, that was. 100 year old fundraising or or our donors expecting it and how do we create a paradigm shift to move forward as we're having other important conversations around the decolonization of wealth and engaging our communities in more meaningful ways and directing the work of the nonprofit. I mean, it really is a conversation I hope that we we can continue and and I'd like to invite all of all of our panelists to um, think through some final thoughts we'll we'll uh, I know I'm throwing you, I'm th- putting you on the on the spot there, Rachel, but I'm going to go to you first and then Regine, Alan, Ben, and Jay. Sure. So I love that example of the, the theater and the community. And, and I know, you know, you, you have to have in your example, a thousand dollars to buy a seat, but what that, when you see all those names, it also says to you that an entire community built that theater, which is something oh, that's kind yeah. of cool. So, it, it, you know, it, it, to me, it depends on what it, what naming right we're actually talking about. Like, how big is that is that naming right? Um, but we've talked about fundraisers, but the fundraisers are not the ones setting their targets. 
you know, the fundraisers aren't saying I'm going to go out and raise $35 million. The fundraisers are being told to go raise that money. And so, you know, we're talking about executive leadership and boards and then fundraisers having tools in their toolkit to raise the money that they need for a cause. And like it or not, buildings and rooms and things that are tangible are something that they can sell. It's like it's something you know, they can offer up. But I actually think there are a lot of donors out there that are really totally okay not having their name on things. I think that there's a shift that I've observed where people are looking at impact, that are looking at funding things differently. Um, They're even looking at how to fund things in ways that are not philanthropic, which I know bothers people in the philanthropic community, but they just want to drive change. So I think it's it's just kind of maybe a, a slightly old approach that is something that's been done. And it's worthy of, of mm-hmm. asking if it fits today, particularly when, mm-hmm. you know, people who we think are wonderful, lauded people next week are not because we find out something that's never going to stop. You know, it'd be interesting if we factor this into the feasibility study or to know if anybody does, if they have those conversations around is is that gift matrix an important part of your philanthropy or would you be giving anyway? I'd be curious to know if anyone's actually asking donors that before they move forward. So Regine, you've got the mic. Sure. You know, I think, um, you know, in terms of another thing that we didn't actually really kind of talk about was, um, you know, just the valuation of some of these these gifts, right? Um, you know, I'm north of the border uh, in Canada, and you know, there was just an announcement last week about um, a, a hospital that was named, and it was at uh, 36 million dollars, and that's Canadian dollars. Uh, and so, you know, my experiences in fundraising and some of the not for profits, I you know, I've, I've sat behind doors in. You know, I don't know that necessarily valuation is taking place and really understanding the numbers and the data and and, and the analytics behind what, what dollar figure uh, is being thrown out there. Uh, we see it in the sport world, and I also came from the sport world, and I think that's, you know, obviously eyeballs on, on television aren't comparative to, you know, trap foot traffic to hospitals or, or academia, but... Um, you know, it begs the question in terms of really kind of scrutinizing what these deals look like and what the worth is. Is money being left on the table? Are they asking for for too much money? And then I think lastly, I'll just kind of go back to that whole wealth transfer that's going to be taking place by 2030, right? Like $68 trillion is no chump change. And, um, you know, as, as mentioned, you know, millennials, are not going to be giving in the same and and be motivated the same way that you know the elder you know their elder generation that are passing this money on to them um so you know the fundraising sector really needs to look at and shift quickly in terms of what is going to excite them and um you know it's it's not the same old and i think there's going to be this huge uh shift in turn uh that the, the sector needs to be prepared for great Great points. Anybody have any comments on Regine's uh, share there? We're not on a time crunch. I just think that you're absolutely right, Regine, that millennials are, you know, we know that they are reconfiguring all of our social constructs right now. And uh, the charitable sector is not immune to that. It's already happening and, and shining a light on 
what the way forward is going to look like and having these conversations to challenge the old constructs and the quote traditional way that we've always done things is fundamentally important and yet we're we you know to alan's point the smaller organizations may not have the you know in order to think critically you really need to have the space to feel safe and to not be under the gun and to get off the hamster wheel and uh, a lot of charitable organizations just don't have the space to take a breath and think about what if we did it a new and different way. Does that make sense? I'm just looking for any validation. Any? I, I, yeah, it, it totally <laughs> makes sense. I mean, I think there are organizations out there that are doing things that are different. It's just mm -hmm. that when you think about naming rights, it's it's in traditional sectors. It's you know, it's colleges and universities with schools or performing arts centers. And there is a there's a traditional. I bet if you looked at the age of donors in some of these, you might find something interesting yeah. versus like the age of donors um, funding, you know, racial equity or, Absolutely. you know, and, and yeah. we also know that a lot of donors of color are being left completely left out of the systems mm -hmm. of traditional philanthropy. So but they're but we know that they're generous. We've done research to see that they're generous. So. I think we're talking about a specific practice within a subset of institutions um, within the larger sector. Yeah, that's a great ad, um, Rachel. We we are having a narrow conversation, I I think, and and shifting that perspective and widening and widening it is uh, important. Al, what what do you what what's on your mind? Well, I think it was I think it was Rachel who earlier. Um, made the point that the Sacklers were mostly, going back to the Sacklers, were mostly known for their philanthropy more than how they made the money. And in fact, they they worked really hard, even though they were the sole owners of, the family were the sole owners of Purdue Pharma. Uh, they They did not, for the most part, have executive positions there. They controlled the board. They got all the money. But they kind of hid that part and they were just so out front in getting their name attached to, um, you know, art, art, art museums and, and medical schools and things like that. And, and so somehow I think woven in here is that notion. Uh, I, I kind of think when it's one thing to, to, to sort of wash your reputation through charitable gifts, it's the other to establish it and hide where your money comes from. Um, through their charitable gifts. And I think the reason the Massachusetts attorney general was so insistent on getting, getting that, you know, no naming rights here, folks, uh, clause into the settlement was because it was just such an egregious over the top example of doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, ben, what do you think? We're all talking about your work. Yeah, these are great points. I don't have um, a huge amount to add. the The example of the Sacklers is, is you know, is pretty extreme. Um, but the, the reason why I think it's worth at least kind of um, thinking about uh, uh, and, and thinking of it as a model is because ultimately, what the Attorney General's um, determined was that the the fact that the Sacklers had their names on buildings did damage to the public. And I, I think that's the kind of the, I mean, it, again, it's an extreme case, but I, I think just something to think about when we discuss naming rights 
is not, I mean, I think the obvious way to look at it is how much money do naming rights bring in from donors? I completely agree with Al and with, uh, and with Jay. I think that, I mean, that, um, that these are you know, major inducements and you know, uh, probably uh, we're not gonna get rid of them um, anytime soon and we might not even wanna get rid of them anytime soon. Um, but but I, I think if, if my article does anything, it's just to kind of encourage folks to think about you know, what the broader kind of social consequence of a public sphere dominated by these names might be. And it might be the case that we decide that basically it's worth it. You know, it's, it's worth having uh, names that might not necessarily signify the highest ideals of our society you know, enshrined in, in many of our charitable institutions because that's the way that we actually fund a lot of these really important institutions. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm not here to kind of to judge that, um, that trade-off, but I think it's something we at least have to consider. And, and so, um, you know, I think the, the questions people have been asking, the points people have been raising are all really valid, and I think they're part of that reconsideration. Thank you. Thank you for your work and thank you for being here tonight. And thank you to all of our panelists who were here. I loved the point about if aliens were to come down and see all the names on the buildings, what would they think of our society? Jay, like, you know, <laughs> <Right>. holy cow. <laughs> well, I hate to think that we need aliens to tell us how to do things better, but, but um, if do. that's... If that's what's required, you know, aliens and Ben and a few other people in this room, then then let's 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 send a signal out into space and hope for the best. But I'd like to think in the meantime that um, that we can view this conversation, Kimberly, is not just about, um, uh, you know, on one hand, strategies and tactics of fundraising and philanthropy um, and then on the other about values and principles, both of which are important. But but about what you were talking about a second ago, Ben, which is that in, at some level, if you measure this in terms of human life, having the Sackler name on buildings did damage the public. And not just in the sense about values and who we are, what the institutional uh, you know, name embodies, all of that's important. And you've documented that and written about that eloquently. But I'm thinking about the fact that 70,000 people died last year from OxyContin overdoses in the United States, half a million since 1999. And, and I'm not in a position, and maybe nobody here is, to say, how much of that uh, that death was directly attributable to any particular member of a family or the fact that they have their name on buildings or did and don't any longer and might in the future, but it certainly should reframe this so we don't just think about this as, well, we need to raise money, so we'll just do it the same old way. Maybe we should be rethinking how we do this, not just because the big campaigns um, are, uh, are, are um, can be run this way and small ones can't, but because in a way, maybe sort of like the names on buildings, when the larger campaigns and fundraising activities are done in a way that is truly uh, beneficial to society, not just to the institution raising the money, but to society as a whole, maybe that serves as a good example for all the smaller organizations that also have to raise a few bucks to do the good work they do. Uh, I, I mean, I wonder what this is going to mean as we go forward in this series, but what I hope it means is that we can continue taking a look at these big issues like this, this soberly, but um, 
diving in with the kind of uh, depth that, that Ben has done and this conversation has offered us. And I know when we talk about stuff like the Epstein case, which is coming up soon. Coming up soon. Um, and Harvard. Harvard and, and Harvard. I mean, we'll have lessons to learn there that might seem they're, they're very far away from a social service agency in the middle of the country somewhere, but I'm not sure that they are. I think there are lessons to be learned that all of us can apply. So I'm really grateful uh, for Ben's work and for everybody's conversation here, and particularly for you, Kimberly, for uh, making this conversation so robust. Thank you so much for joining us for this important conversation. We hope that you found it worthwhile, and we would also love to know what you think. Our contact information is included in the show notes. And please remember to subscribe, follow, and you can even participate live on Clubhouse. We welcome you into this conversation because we can all do better at doing good.